Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. But as many of you guys know about me, I'm a big sports fan, and uh, this week as I was studying on this topic of hope, I found a story that I thought was quite uh, appropriate for this particular topic, and it said that a man approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon. He asked one of the boys in the dugout what the score was. The little boy responded, it's 18 to nothing, and we're behind. Boy, said the spectator, I'll bet you boys are discouraged. The boy replied, why should we be discouraged? We haven't even got to bat yet. (laughs) Just like this boy's hope in his team's ability to overcome an 18-run deficit, the Christian hope is exactly the same. It's a living and active hope that doesn't focus on the current circumstances, but on the future glory that awaits us. One definition I read this week describing hope is that it is a joyful and confident expectation in the fulfillment of the promises of God. Let me repeat that. It says that it is a joyful and confident expectation. Not a wishful thing, but a joyful and confident expectation in the fulfillment of the promises of God. So today, for our first Advent message, we will be looking at this living hope through the words of Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. Let's go ahead and read that this morning. We'll be starting in verse 3. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, we thank you this morning, Father, for the opportunity for us to dive in it, Father. And Lord, let, us guide, let it guide us in our discussion of hope. Father, this morning I pray, God, that you would allow your word to do exactly what it does. Father, pierce our hearts, convict us where we need convicting, encourage us where we need encouraging, and ultimately point back to who you are and the glory of your Son. Father, we pray this morning, Father, that you would empty me of myself and fill me with your spirit, Father God, to deliver this message, not from me, but from you. Let us all have open ears and open hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, we ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen. 
This is the first sermon that I've preached on or preached since I've been uh, participating in uh, what John Piper calls his preaching class. It's a 30 to 40 sermon uh, or lecture where he is uh, describing the art of preaching and talking on these things. I haven't completed all of them yet, but in that, uh, the first, I'm through about 12 right now, and in that, he talks about the art of preaching or the, the task of preaching. If you look at the Greek, the word preach means just to herald. And the word herald, if you look back and what the herald did at that time, is he brought a message from the king to the people. It wasn't his message that he was bringing, but it was solely a message from the king that he relayed to his people. So this morning, it gives me a whole nother outlook on preaching, understanding that what I have to say this morning is not from me. It's not what I've concocted up and made a great uh, put together sermon. No, what I hope to do this morning is to simply relay the message of the king. And that is the same thing that Kevin does, Eric does, and I hope, and my hope is, unfortunately I don't see it, but a lot of pastors around the world are doing the same thing, because that's our job. And another thing that he talks about, and Piper talks about, is that preaching is a miraculous work. It's a miraculous work that me, or any of us that step behind this pulpit, that deliver this message, who are completely completely incapable of changing the hearts of the people that are in our congregation. But the miraculous thing is we rely upon the word and the truth to convict and change the hearts of the hearers. We are simply messengers delivering a message that is life-changing. And any time that you've ever had an experience, I had one this week where I got to deliver truth to an individual that was looking for answers and I solely just delivered truth that was from the word, and their heart was changed. Nothing by what I said, nothing by what I did, but solely rely on the word. So I pray this morning that that is what I am doing, and your job is to have this open and follow along and make sure that I am doing that. So I challenge you this morning, read the word of God. Follow along as we hear this message from God this morning. As we talk about hope, there's three things that I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about what our hope is rooted in. I want to talk about how our hope is useful and how our hope is a promising one. First off, let's talk about how it is rooted. See, we can hope in all sorts of things in our lives. We can place our hope in our marriages. We can place our hope in our children. We can place our hope in our job, our wealth, our health. Etc. So when we say that the world is hopeless, it doesn't mean that the world has nothing that they can place their hope in, but what they're placing their hope in is ultimately hopeless. I love my wife dearly, but if I place my hope solely in her, I am going to find nothing but dissatisfaction. Same with her, with me. I love my job dearly. I'm in fairly decent health, but I know just as anything that I place my hope in in this world, it can fade as quickly as it appeared. So for me to place and root my hope in something that is earthly ultimately sets me up for failure. 
So it's important this morning to not look at the word hopelessness as not finding something to put our hope in, but it's in the condition of what we put our hope in. And this is what separates the believers from the unbelievers in the world. As believers, we place our hope in Christ. We are rooted in the finished work that Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. That is where our hope is rooted. And Peter brings this point out here in these first couple verses. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter outlines here where genuine Christian hope is found. We're not talking about earthly hope this morning. I've heard many people, many people make comments. If we could get this much money in our bank account, then we can be hopeful. If I can get this person elected into office, then and only then can we be hopeful. Hope is not found in anything but the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear me on that. No matter how great our spouse may be or how awesome our children may be, placing our hope in them will ultimately fail us. But follow me here. When Peter says that our hope is found in the mercy that we have received through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God himself brought to us, Nothing that we've found, nothing that we have brought up our own, but that God brought to us, making us born again. See, the thing that sticks out most here is that this living hope is founded and rooted in what God did. What God did through his son Jesus. You have your Bibles in front of you right now. Look at verse 3. Where in there... Does it mention that you have done anything to bring about this hope that we are found rooted in? Nowhere in there does it talk about you have mustered up this hope. You have designed this hope. You have found this hope. No, what it says is that he has caused us to be born again. I listened to Alistair preach a sermon on this week, and I know Nate's rolling his eyes, but I listened to a sermon that Alistair preached this week, and Alistair talked about even the fact, the wording of being born again shows that we have nothing to do with this. Think about the time that you were born. Everybody can remember that, right? What did you do in that process? Absolutely nothing. So the fact that these words of being born again are being brought and used here to talk about this hope that is coming to us shows us our reliance upon God to bring forth this hope in our lives. If our hope is built on anything other than Christ, then our hope never, it doesn't become a guarantee, but it becomes circumstantial and not a guarantee. And this is where the world finds themselves when they place their hope in anything other than Christ. If I place my hope in my marriage and it starts to go downhill, 
where is why I'm left hopeless. If I place my hope in my job and I get fired, where is my hope? If I place my hope in my kids or my bank account and they disappoint me or that thing gets drained, where is my hope? Since our hope is rooted in the finished work of Christ, we then receive an inheritance. What, did you, what do we do to receive an inheritance in this world? Nothing. We don't do anything to receive an inheritance. It's given to us. But we receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And how is it kept like that? Because what in your life can you say that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? Nothing. Nothing in this world offers all three of those adjectives that are used to describe our hope. And the only reason that our hope is defined by those three words is because, as Peter mentioned here, it is kept for us in heaven. He's the keeper of our hope. He's the one that sustains it. He's the one that created it. He's the one that keeps it safe and undefiled for us. Hope is not an uncertainty in Christ like it is in everything else. Hope in Christ doesn't cling to a possibility, but it clings to an everlasting and never-changing God. It's not something that clings to a possibility, but it's something that clings to an everlasting and never-changing God. If you notice the similarities in those three words used to describe our inheritance that comes through our hope, it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. All of these words carry the same meaning of steadfastness and everlasting. Does that sound like something worth putting our hope into? It's a guarantee. It's an expectation. It's kept in heaven where it is undefiled and unchanged. Why would we place our hope in anything else? It's just like an investment that you would make in the, in the world. If you invest in something, you invest in something with the hope that there may be a possibility that it thrives and that you can receive payment, right? Imagine if you're investing in something that was an automatic guarantee. I'm going to make money off of this investment. 100% guarantee. Now, I'm no broker or investment banker or anything like that, but I can tell you right now that there's probably never anything that you can 100% with no uncertainty whatsoever invest your money in without the possibility of losing that money. But the investment that we make in our hope when we place it in Christ is a 100% guarantee that you will receive a blessing from that, and that blessing is the eternal life that is given to us through Christ Jesus. 100% guarantee. So my question this morning, when it comes to rooted, man, I spit a ton up here. I don't know if you guys catch that or not, if it's just the new lights that we got up here. 
I'm spraying everywhere. <laughs> Rabbit, get back on the trail, sorry. But as we are talking about what we are rooted in, all of us probably have something that we've placed our hope in, but my question to you is, is that hope rooted in the undefiled, unimperishable, and unfading person of Jesus Christ? Well, I think the answer to our question comes in verse 6 and 7. Because when we find our hope at its worst or at its best is whenever we find ourselves going through trials and tribulations. Josh, quit talking about suffering. Kevin hits on this all the time. But it's true. Trials and tribulations are truly where our hope is founded and where we see what our hope is truly rooted in. It's important to note here that this hope is not only something we have, but it's something that we can use. And I hope you can understand what I'm saying there. I think that in the church today, we have too many professing Christians and not as many acting Christians. Do you, do you agree with that? We have too many professing Christians and not as many acting Christians. We can say that we possess hope, but my question is, is how are you using that hope? Because if we possess hope and don't use it, What's the point? I had to think about, I don't golf, but I, I golf with guys that spend an insane amount of money on golf clubs, but they're way better than what I am. I, I bought a $200 set, and this guy that I'm golfing with is putting with a, a putter that costs more than my entire set and probably what I've paid in my years of playing golf. But if you buy, if you buy this brand new putter and you don't want it to get scratched or damaged or whatever, and you just keep it in your bag all the time, what's the point? You're missing the purpose of what you possess. It's the same with our hope. If we possess this great, undefiled, imperishable, unfading hope that is rooted in Christ Jesus, and we never use it, what's the point of possessing it? Peter references this point by starting verse 6 with this. He says, in this, in this, meaning now that you know what our hope is rooted in, now that you know that, here's what you're to do with it. And what you're supposed to do with that hope that's rooted in Jesus is you are to simply rejoice. Rejoice. Now, Peter has some gall to tell the exiles that he's writing to here in 1 Peter to rejoice. Do we understand the audience of who Peter is writing to in 1 Peter? These are exiles. These are people that have accepted the faith of Jesus, they've left Judaism, and now they are being persecuted to the max. And in some of the most intense persecutions that they have faced in this life, what does Peter tell them to do? He tells them to rejoice. Now think about us in the position of the exiles when Peter tells them that what they're supposed to do in the hardest times of their life to rejoice. What's your first thought going to be? Peter, you have no idea 
what we're going through. You're telling us to rejoice in the fact that we're being persecuted, that we're being harmed, and that many of us and our friends and our family are dying, and you're telling me that we're supposed to rejoice in that? Yes. Because you're not rejoicing in the circumstances of what is going on, but you are rejoicing in the hope that is given to you in Christ Jesus. There is no greater thing for us to grasp here this morning than to, in our trials and tribulations, to grab a hold of and rejoice in the hope in which our faith is in. Rejoicing does not have to happen only when things in your life are going great. But rejoicing happens in the midst of trials and tribulations, and that rejoicing is what makes us different than the world. This is where we lack, in my opinion, in the church today. This is where we lack. We suffer in the same manner in which the world suffers, hopelessly. We suffer hopelessly because we complain, and we argue, and we whimper around, and we act like my four-year-old son who just whines because everything is so terrible. We're getting better. But that's how we act in our suffering. Woe is me. Can you believe what happened to me? This is not what the Christian is, this is not how the Christian is supposed to suffer. We suffer differently because we actually have a hope that is rooted in the unchanging work of Jesus Christ. See, in our trials, we look for hope in order to get out of them in every single corner. What is it that we do in the midst of trials and suffering? Let's be honest here this morning. What is it that we do in the midst of our trials and our suffering? We try to find any way that we can to try to get out of them, right? We try to look at in every corner to try to get out of our sufferings. Or what we do is we try to do everything that we possibly can to not get into an uh, opportunity of suffering. That's me. I try to go with every way that I possibly can in order to not have to suffer. Because suffering's not easy. Suffering's not fun. Going through trials and tribulations is not something that all of us are lining up to in order to get in line to get. But we have to understand that this living hope, this living hope that we're talking about this morning, is it's not something that we can see in the midst of our trials and tribulations, but it is something that is promised. I almost just let Bert stay up here and preach my sermon this morning because that's exactly the verse that I was going to use, and me and him didn't even talk this morning. But as we read out of Romans 8, 24 to 25, it says, For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Understand that. Hope that is seen is not hope. Anything that you can see in front of you right now, there's not worth putting hope in. For who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
Bert hit the nail on the head this morning when he read this verse that in hope, these people were waiting for the Messiah to come. They were waiting. They were being patient, waiting for this hope to arrive. And we in our lives are anticipating this return of Christ. And until that day comes, we will deal with suffering, tribulation, and persecution throughout our entire lives. But it is in the hope of what is to come that gives us strength to persevere through those things. And in that waiting is where the blessing is found. I told Kevin this morning, I love flip services because I got to go in my office and sit here and read through my sermon, which I don't always have time to do on a Sunday morning, but I had time to read through my sermon. And this morning, this thought came to my head as I got to this point right here. But you have to understand that the greatest blessing of our trials doesn't come when they're over, but it comes in the hope, faith, and trust that is built in the midst of them. Do you, do you see that this morning? We think that the greatest deliverance and the greatest thing about our trials is when they're over, and we miss out on the waiting and the hope and the trust and the faith that is built in the midst of them. So those of us in here that are trying to avoid trials, try to avoid suffering, avoid persecution, you're missing out on the genuine building of our faith and hope in Christ in the midst of those things. Isaiah 40, 31 says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Think about all of those things. Renew their strength. Mount up on wings like eagles. Run and not grow weary. Walk and not grow faint. All of those, all of those examples right there are strengthening things. In the midst of trials, we can't walk. We don't feel like we can go forward. But it is in the midst of those trials that we gain those strengths we gain that spiritual energy, that spiritual muscle as we wait on the hope for the Lord that is to come. And in that, we shall run and not grow weary. See, in order for this hope to be useful in our lives, we have to wait on the Lord. And what does waiting involve? It involves faith and trust in him. This living hope is not only useful in, our, in your life whenever you truly trust. This living hope is only useful in your life whenever you truly trust God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And it is solely through trials and tribulations do you see the genuineness of your faith be put to the test. As Peter writes here in verse 6 and 7. And this is all part of the sanctifying process that we are going through in order to grow our relationships with God. And not only that, and we see in Romans 5, 3, 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. Using this hope to propel us through our trials and tribulations reminds us of the victory that is ahead. 
It takes our minds off of the things that are in front of us and allows us to look forward to the great glory that is coming when he returns. And suffering is different. Hear me out. Suffering is different when you know what the outcome is going to be. Suffering is different and handled different when you know what the outcome is going to be. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I've used this example before, but I use this analogy of watching a ball game on DVR. We, we experienced that the other day when IU was on, but it was time to eat supper, and we paused it, and my father-in-law said he can't stand watching games on DVR, especially if he's seen the score. I know there's an individual in here that that's, all he, that's how he watches every game on DVR. won't mention any names. It's a little bit weird, but it's all right, okay? But he watches every game DVR, and let me tell you this. This is an example I've used before. If I watch, it's not baseball season, so I'll use IU. If I watch IU basketball, knowing that they won 88 to 86, and then I go back and watch the DVR game, I don't have to worry about every turnover, every missed shot, every missed free throw, every stupid foul, all these different things that go on during the game, I don't have to worry about because I know that IU won the game. Think about that in your life with suffering. We can truly point back to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians that are called to worship. We can look at every trial. We can look at every persecution. We can look at every trial and tribulation and suffering that we go through as a momentary affliction. Why? Because we know the outcome. We know the victory that is ahead. And I know what you're saying right now. It's the same thing I tell, I tell whenever we're trying to reward kids for good behavior. If you don't give that instant, instant, uh, that's what I'm looking for, reward, instant reward, as soon as they do something good, for some kids it's hard for them to know, hey, if you have a good week on Friday, you can have your reward. What we want is that reward right now. But let me tell you something. Whenever we're going through trials and tribulations, hope is not receiving something now. It's not seeing what's in front of us, but hope is looking to say, I know that right now my marriage is rough. I know right now that I'm, I'm struggling with this sin. I know right now that things just seem terrible. I know right now that my kids are struggling. I know right now, whatever fill in the blank with whatever suffering you may be going through, I know right now that this may be going on, but I put my faith and trust in the finished work and the hope that is to come, that I know in the end Christ is victorious. How do you think Christians get through every political year that we get through each year when we see these people get voted in that you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be a rough four years. But guess what? It's, it's a momentary affliction of the glory that is awaiting. It's how we get through cancer diagnoses. It's how we get through losing our jobs. It's how we get through struggles with family members. It's how we get through all of these different things that we're struggling with, knowing that in the end, in the scope of eternity, it is a momentary affliction. And it's the hope that we hold on to that allows us to go through that. And this hope is promising. 
There's a promise in the living hope of made available through us in Jesus. And that promise in him is what makes our hope so alive. It's what makes it present. It's what makes this hope worth our uh, time. It says in verses 8 and 9, though you may have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter closes this particular section out on hope and rejoicing by reminding the exiles that even though they didn't walk with Jesus, even though now in the midst of their persecution it's hard to see his goodness going on, it's hard to see his work in the midst of what they're doing, he says, guess what, you still believe in him. You still love him. And it is that truth that should give you hope in a hopeless situation. Put yourself in the shoes of the exiles and the persecutions that they're going through. Hopelessness awaits them, but a hope rooted in Christ gives them that desire to push forward, to know that this is momentary. And isn't that the reminder that we need at times? That reminder that even though we may not see him working, even though we may not see what he is doing, we can still rejoice in knowing that his glory awaits us. It's the beautiness, it's the beauty of hope. It's the beauty of hope. Remember what Bert read, it's not, it's not hope is not in putting in what we see, but it, what is unseen. In the words of Paul in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If there's no verse that you put in your car or put on your mirror in the morning or just remind yourself every day in the midst of suffering, remember the words of Paul. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us for eternity with him. That's a promise that you can take to the bank that he has your best interest in mind, and that best interest is to, in the scope of eternity, usher you in through his son, Jesus Christ. I want to close with this, and it's the lyrics of the uh, opening hymn that we sang this morning. My hope is built on nothing less. This is another page out of Alistair's book, Quoting Hymns, but this is, uh, I saw this this morning, and I thought I loved this, this song. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest upon his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What a beautiful way 
to portray the hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for those of you that may be suffering this morning and may be going through times of hopelessness, where is your hope rooted? Because I'm telling you what, if we root our hope in Jesus Christ through the trials and tribulations and suffering that we face, we have something that we can cling fast to, something that is undefiled, imperishable, and unfading, a guarantee of a future with him forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. We thank you, Father, for today. God, we thank you for today because we get to hear of this great message of hope. Father, this living hope that is active. Father, this living hope that was started and established with the sending of your son over 2,000 years ago. Father, the form of a small child could bear the hope that we had and we needed. Father, lost in our hopelessness of our sin, lost in the trials and the tribulations of this world, Father, I pray, God, that we would cling to the hope of your Son. Father, I pray today, Father, that for any of us that may have rooted our hope in anything less than your Son's blood and righteousness, God, that we would recognize that. We would turn to you, fully rely and depend on the hope that is available through Jesus. And Father God, that that hope would propel us through our trials. It would propel us through our tribulations. Lord, that in the midst of some of the hardest and difficult times of our lives, we can know that you are holding us fast to the living hope that exists. God, we thank you for everything that you've done for us and for this hope that you've given. We ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen.